Welcome to Unbooking the Tankatory, the spin-off series from Unbooking the Territory that takes a look at the in-ring career of Tank Abbott. This week, it's a one-man's meat takeover. Welcome to Tank Talks. <laughs> So, Danny, how are you? Very well, myself, mate. How about yourself? Oh, I'm better than I deserve to be, my friend, <laughs> and I'm ready to talk about another Monday night of jam-packed wrestling action. Me too, mate, and it's a wild one this week, isn't it? It most certainly is, my friend. So, yes, as you guys will have probably picked up by now, Rob and Dan are not only enjoying another week off from uh, talking the old Mr Tank, they've actually had an extra week off. Uh, but that doesn't matter. That is the beauty of podcasting. Uh, but he doesn't actually have a match this week, so it's up to your boys at One Man's Meet to sprinkle our magic smart mark pixie dust all over this review. And sadly, all good things have to come to an end as well, Danny, as this is the penultimate episode of Tank Talks. It really is, mate. And it's it's been such a pleasure doing all of this. It's been just going through these uh, 2000 Nitros. It's like you always hear, oh, Nitro 2000 was horrible, WW 2000 was horrible. It's been anything but, hasn't it? Absolutely. If anything, you know, the product 23 years ago is sometimes a lot more watchable and certainly a lot more entertaining than a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today from uh, the big two really isn't it it really is mate i like how you put sometimes because obviously there's some good things today and in terms of in ring and stuff like that i don't think this would hold up but the entertainment no. factor is brilliant absolutely and that's the thing you know there's there's good and bad to all parts of wrestling whether it be 23 years ago whether it be 23 minutes ago but the whole beauty of shows like this is just find something that you enjoy and just live in that particular corner rather than just being negative all the time yes very well said absolutely and we have got a lot to talk about tonight but before we can talk about the happenings from 23 years ago we need to talk about our libations for the evening so since this is a utt property my friend what are you drinking tonight I'm just having nice water today, uh, Chris. Um, how about yourself? <laughs> well, that is an excellent idea in this lovely warm weather that we're having. Um, but, of course, I am letting the side down on the on the tasty beverages front. I am having something alcoholic. And I have uh, scoured the shelves of my local Asda. And I've picked up a Tiny Rebel Equalizer IPA, which is a, a New England style. It's a bit tropical. It's a bit hazy. Um, it absolutely stinks, which is what I like in an IPA, uh, but it's very refreshing from the fridge. So I will be enjoying that as we talk about the happenings of Vince Russo's fever dream. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. <laughs> so, guys, uh, the episode that we are looking at is the August 28th, 2000 episode of WCW Monday Nitro, which was held in the Pan American Center in Las Cruces, New Mexico. 
and a quick cursory glance of the WWE Network offers this news for the show that we're watching. The band is back together once again as Vince Russo assembles a familiar group to put an end to his nemesis, Goldberg. While the faction attempts to restore their previous dominance, superstars unite to put an end to their new beginning. Plus, the filthy animals face the natural-born Thuas, Sting has a message for the Dark Carnival, and more. So, on paper, it sounds like a decent show, mate. It really does. I mean, that's just stacked, that lineup. I mean, you've got all the big stars there. Sting, I mean, just Vince Russo, um, that new band that he's put together. Yeah, it just sounds brilliant. Exactly. And sometimes a show being stacked can be a good thing. But as we may come to find out, there is stacked and then sometimes there is overstacked but let's not get too carried away instead let's talk about the real blast from the past recap that we got to open the show danny as we see old archival footage of the best iteration of the new world order ever nwo 2000 that's right retired arn anderson fat bam bam bigelow no one was safe were they danny they certainly weren't mate but as I clicked on this, I was thinking, have I clicked on a January 2000 Nitro? Um, I, I got a bit lost for a second there, but yeah, I'm sure this intro was used um, in a previous Nitro uh, from January, like the exact same, like with the music and everything. Yes, I was having very similar thoughts because I do believe, um, and I'm more than open to be corrected if I'm wrong, that this video was actually used for the episode of WCW Nitro that I reviewed with Robin Dan on my first appearance on UTT. So, yes, I do believe that, uh, yeah, they were trying to pull the uh, the wool over our eyes on this one, I think. Yeah, and it all comes full circle, doesn't it? It completely does, yes. But uh, once that video is shown, a limo is then shown pulling up with Scott Steiner, Kevin Nash, Jeff Jarrett and Vince Russo inside. And Mark Madden announces that the band are back together with a new lead singer. And it's a two-man team tonight, mate, as we are blessed with the stylings of Tea Time Tony and Big Money Mark. So, my first question to ask is, where do you think Mike Tenay is this week? Oh, that's a good question. I'm guessing he's somewhere eating sour grapes in the uh, backstage area. Ah, yes, that's not bad. Uh, I do also think he could be backstage, but I think he's with Mean Gene snorting coke off of Pamela Paulshock. <laughs> that sounds more plausible. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The the Diaz brothers are in full swing and uh, doing whatever is necessary to get through the night, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but Mikey is missing out on the six-man tag team action to open our show as the Dark Carnival come out to take on three count. And even though the Great Mooter is here... He's on commentary as Vampiro and ICP are going to be doing the work for the faction. And it was just like having a Japanese Gordon Surly at the booth, wasn't it, Danny? <laughs> yeah, I think putting the Great Muta on commentary was 
Not a good decision. Um, I had to turn my television down several times at his rambling and his screaming. I was like, oh, man, just get this over with. <laughs> yeah, it was the first of many terrible decisions tonight, mate. I mean, I, I, I really don't get it because both Violent J and, and Shaggy Tudup actually commentated for JCW. And while they're not to everyone's tastes, I think their shtick really works on Nitro. Like they, they really feed off each other well. Their comedy is brilliant. Um, they work really well with Tony Schiavone on the few times yeah. that they have. So I think they would have been a, a, a lot better here to, to kind of carry this match. Yeah, big time. But with regards to the match itself, it's all mostly dives to the outside for a bit until... Shannon Moore and Shane Helms hit Vampiro with a double suplex before Evan Courageous helps on a triple flapjack for two. Courageous and Helms then clothesline Jay and two dope out of the ring before whipping Vampiro into the ropes for a double team suplex as Muta screams. Um, Vamp then catches Moore with a clothesline and a nail in the coffin before a Samoan drop by Jay and a guillotine leg drop from two dope gets the pin for the Juggalo Army. But Danny, this this match and this complete pairing as a whole was, was missing something. But apart from Vampiro missing a step, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I couldn't either. But one thing I loved about this was the fact that Juggalo Championship Wrestling got a lot of um, free publicity here. I mean, And I mean a lot, Chris. It was like... This would never, ever happen in wrestling today, where um, uh, basically an outlaw promotion is plastered all over television. Tony Schiavone and Mark Madden were, um, they were just like, oh, uh, Vampiro's the world championship of JCW. And they were talking about it. It was amazing. All that free publicity. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's something that you certainly wouldn't get now. And I do believe that uh, Violent J has talked about this in interviews before, in that when they were with WCW, they opted to be paid very little. And in return, you know, they asked to have uh, promotion done for albums and for JCW promotion. So, yeah, uh, it looks like it's paying off really well over the last few weeks, isn't it? Oh, it really is, mate. And then you think about fast forward 23 years and it's on a subscription service like this. So people can just Google J JCW and actually think, wow, this actually is going to live for years and years and years to come. So it was a good idea. Demon! The Demon Death Torborg! And now the Go great... Go get him, 
Muda! The Go gr- get him, Muda! That sound you heard was the great Muda leaving the broadcast location. I miss him already. What a coward, man. He's poised on the outside as the demon has come to the aid. Believe it or not, of Tank Abbott. But the demon, as well as Tank Abbott, Mark Madden is still outmanned here. Everybody hates everybody, Tony. Everybody's switching sides. Oh, watch out. Everybody, there's Muda! There's Muda! Muda with the... In the face! He is the toughest color commentator in the business, Tony. He put the green mist in the face of the demon. And now look at this, the demon. And hold on! Hold the phone! Tony, did you grab my leg? It's Sting! Here it comes! Sting! Vaulting down to the ring with a baseball bat. The great equalizer! And look at this! He's hitting three count! He's nailing the ICP! He's got Dampira! He has come to the aid of the demon! Who came in to take Evan? Sting is here tonight. Sting's like a one-man all-star lineup. He just hit eight home runs. It was a great idea, Danny, and thankfully. I ended up working out what was missing in this match, and it was Tank Abbott, who marches down to the ring and treats all of three counts to a jolly good beating, but the jugglers and three counts all lay into him, prompting the demon of all people to run out to give us all a good laugh before Muta even things up, but then the lights go off, and it's... It's Sting! With a bat! and he makes short work of everyone, and our heroes stand tall. So not so much to talk about from the Tank Abbott front, uh, but I will give him kudos for giving six people a fair shot at him, because I think he'd have killed him if the crowd wasn't there. Oh yeah, big time, he absolutely would have. But I just want to ask you, Chris, um, what do you think about the logic of uh, six wrestlers wrestling each other and then at the end of it they're all coming together to take out one man does it make it pointless that they had a match in the first place it was it does make it look completely pointless to be fair yeah like i can see obviously three count have got this uh little spat going with tank abbott and potentially justifiably so but yeah you know to to suddenly link up with your opponents for the night and I'll tell you now, Danny, spoiler alert, because I've been watching the episodes between the two that we're going to be covering. Uh, there's no follow-up, none whatsoever. So it's, again, it's another one of tonight's fabled Vince Russo's Dumb Decisions, because, yes, this goes nowhere. The Dark Carnival could have easily bailed, and yeah. somebody else could have come out to try to even the odds, but... Hey, her, uh, there's no point doing anything about something that happened 23 years ago, is there? No, there certainly isn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, after what has been a very eventful 10 minutes, we get what I am calling NWO Grey strolling the corridors with the natural-born thrillers. And they're coming to the ring. So that'll be something to look forward to, won't it? It certainly will, mate. I wonder if they'll play the NWO music when they come out. Oh, that would just be lovely, wouldn't it? It really would. But did you notice um, they were very careful not to say the the letters NWO? Yes, they were. It was all about the band getting back together and familiar faces reuniting and all this sort of thing. And I wouldn't mind, but Nash wears an NWO shirt 
for the episode and yeah. it's a property that wcw earn and yeah. let's face it by now for most fans of wcw it would have been the norm for something to be good for a week or two before completely disappearing so they should have just gone with it really they could have even sold a few more shirts yeah, they absolutely could have. It's almost like a blueprint for when um, the NWO came to TNA and they were just called the band and they, exactly. could, they couldn't. Yeah, and it was like, so it was almost like that um, in a complete mirror. It completely is, mate. And yeah, that is a, an excellent point to make because, yeah, um, another missed opportunity there. Uh, but, Danny, in case we weren't aware, old Vinnie Roo has built himself an army to get rid of Goldberg and he comes out to the ring and demands adulation because he's built uh, an apparently elite family in WCW which is probably the only time that barely a person Mike Sanders has been described as elite and he warns Goldberg that this is the hard way out that Russo had alluded to a few weeks back and it's going to get New York ugly. Jarrett then takes the microphone, calls the fans slap asses and state that he has the stroke before asking the fans if they honestly think Goldberg could stop them. He also takes the time to challenge Mike Awesome to a bunkhouse brawl at Fall Brawl for apparently screwing him out of the US title. Scott Steiner then grabs a mic and I nearly covered my ears but he kept it relatively clean for him and stated that revenge was sweet for Goldberg attacking Medesia before stating that he could, apparently, and I quote, shave his ass and walk backwards and still look better than Goldberg's girlfriend. Now, Danny, I don't mean to be funny, but he absolutely couldn't, because he would still look like the weapons forger from a 1990s RPG. <laughs> he certainly would, but yeah, I, I felt like that was Scott Steiner just being Scott Steiner there. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, up until hearing that again, that is a term that I had never heard before. So, yeah, I am pretty confident that he just makes up his own phrases. Yeah. <laughs> but he ends by saying that Goldberg is going to be no match for him and they're going to clash at Fall Brawl. So then Nash gets the stick and gets a pretty decent baby face pop. And I actually thought this was really clever from him as he calls himself the puppet master as every couple of months he sucks the fans in to buy his stuff. But then we get the real Nash when it's all sold out and he never gave a damn about us because we can't give him the fame and adulation he wants. But Russo's gang can and all that matters to him is money. And after Fall Brawl, we're looking at the next champion which prompts Russo to correct Nash and state that he won't be the champ at Fall Brawl. He will instead become the champion tonight. So we've made Nash versus Booker tonight with Jarrett and Steiner as referee and enforcer, respectfully, Danny. And that is a main event in any world part of the world, isn't it? Oh, it really is, mate. I mean, that is big time. I love this segment because we've set up three pay-per-view matches and the Nitro main event as well. And, yeah, that's what it's all about, is, like, setting up what is next. So, fantastic stuff. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, a lot of what we're seeing on Nitro from a story aspect has been mostly one-week silliness, but 
in this instance, yeah, they've they've set up a pretty good, you know, one show story, and it's certainly a story that brings out Booker in what can only be described as a lovely tiger print shirt to state that Nash can't back his words up and accepts the challenge. Russo then invites Booker to the ring to discuss matters, but the cat comes out first to state that Russo can't book any matches, even though, Danny, Vince Russo is the actual booker of the company. (laughs) Who would know, mate? (laughs) Exactly. It isn't like Russo's been saying it all the time, is it? Yeah, no, it isn't. No, but I got a massive kick out of... um, Booker T stealing Chris Jericho's uh, catchphrase and he says and I quote would you please shut the hell up and it was like yeah. Jericho was using that all over WWF television at this point and I was like wow he must have been offended <laughs> well exactly I mean short of copying the rock every week Booker T's now decided he also wants to copy Chris Jericho so yeah <laughs> I can I can imagine that uh, Titan Towers weren't too happy with him no. <laughs> <laughs> so the cat and Booker go into the ring where Cat states that he's the boss. Um, so therefore, because he's the boss, he can call Nash, Steiner and Jarrett bitches. And so therefore, he ends up getting braid for his trouble, which brings out the filthy animals who get intercepted by the thrillers who throw the animals to the wolves in the ring. And then the baddies leave. And, Danny, you you would probably think that I would hate this overproduced nonsense, but I actually didn't. I know it's been thrown together really quickly, but you've established something of an alliance here, and you've made Russo look truly like a fully reprehensible character, and they've made this new faction look strong. I mean, what do you think to this? Yeah, pretty much the same. It's like you're giving the natural-born thrillers something there rather than just having them come out they're actually there for backup and they they're definitely established as more heels and a little bit of character as well so i'm all for for it yeah yeah as am i and uh, we then cut to bill goldberg who is already preparing himself for a job after wrestling as well as he's <laughs> digging a ditch Well, not really, but he he is preparing graves as he promises to take Rousseau's men out one by one before burying Rousseau. And uh, we don't know whether that's literally or figuratively, but I must say I did like the clever use of wording there. Yes, they they were very careful with that. Um, I found it hilarious because in... Goldberg's feud with Bobby Lashley a few years ago when they had a match at Saudi Arabia. He Goldberg threatened to kill Bobby Lashley at one point. So I was just thinking, he's no stranger to making uh, death threats on the air, is he? <laughs> he most certainly isn't. No, like maybe this was Goldberg's side deal. Like this is maybe why he was a a part timer in wrestling after two thousand and one. Maybe he was a professional hitman or something. Who knows? He'd make a great one, to be honest with you. He he really would. Certainly, yeah, because uh, yeah, that he's he's certainly very physically imposing, and because he worked for WCW for most of his career, it's not like anybody would recognise him around the world, is it? <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> just just a little bit of number two company humour there, guys. I preferred WCW over WWF back in the day, so please don't cancel us. It's all done out of love. 
<laughs> so after the break, the cat is loaded into an ambulance before we cut to Russo and NWO Grey in the office, where Russo asks the lads to stay by him, which prompts everybody to bugger off one by one as Goldberg gives him a call that for some reason we can all hear because he never put it on speakerphone, did he? No, and even when he threw it off the ground and it was disconnected, you could still hear it. It was almost like... Goldberg was in the room. Yeah, exactly. Or at least picked up really well by a production truck. I mean, honestly, I know I know they started doing digital phones around this time, but the reception was uncanny. It was like you could hear it coming out your TV. <laughs> <laughs> but we next get a technical classic that was up there with the Flair Steamboat trilogy, as Charmel version 2 takes on Tigress and 58 years old major waste of money, where we get a series of love taps, a fake fall and skank fighting before, mercifully, Tigress and Charmel, and you can probably see a pattern forming here, bugger off. Um, one word to describe this match, Danny. Shite. Yeah, I just wrote a waste, um, waste of television time. But it did get 68 stars in the Tokyo Dome, so who are we to argue? Absolutely, yeah, that's it. I mean, I can see Vince Russo loving this over his uh, Sumi Sakai matches and Bull Nakano classics. I mean, it's it's up there with the very best of all Japan women, isn't it? Oh, it really is, yeah. So then after that uh, complete abomination of anything, we get the natural brawn thrillers backstage bullying poor 12-year-old Rey Mysterio before the animals charge in, feeling absolutely no effects of the beatdown that they suffered three minutes ago, and just pop their head in on Vince before <laughs> buggering off. It's buggering off season today, Danny. It really is. The summer of 2000, nobody was interested in staying in work, Chris. <laughs> no, they they absolutely weren't. And uh, obviously no one was believing in kayfabe either. But never mind, because one man that always believes in the power of keeping it real, no questions asked, is Jeff Jarrett, who is in the car park accepting a pickup truck full of guitars before we cut to Mean Gene's side piece, Pamela Paulshock, who is with... That missed opportunity guy, Mike Awesome. And he has quite a lot to say for himself, doesn't he, mate? He really does, mate. But the, the gist of it is he challenges Rick Steiner tonight to a bunkhouse uh, brawl match. And, yeah, um, this I mean, we'll, we'll get to it later on. But I found there was a massive disconnection between this and the Mike Awesome we get later on. But... I love this interview because they even had his own little music as well, didn't they? Yeah, it did. Like that, yeah, that lava lampy Barry White style thing, wasn't it? Yeah, which, yeah, it, it's probably the the cool thing about the character. But as you say, we, we will have something to say about it later when he actually comes to getting into the ring. But all I can say, Danny, about this match coming up with Rick Steiner is that I hope Mike Awesome finds a way to lose somehow, further tarnishing his hard-earned reputation in ECW. Absolutely. <laughs> Why break the habit of a lifetime here? There you go, mate. But however bad he was booked here, it wasn't as bad as the WWF. No, most certainly not. You can you can argue that at least he was put on some level of prominence every week. Yeah. 
And talking of um, massive prominence, we hear the familiar theme of the two Bryans as they make their way to the ring to face the Nazi twins in what is apparently called a House of Pain match. And this is where you win by handcuffing your opponents to the steel cage instead of forcing them to listen to Everlast's back catalogue. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> So we get punches and kicks galore, but the Nazis get the advantage early on, but can't manage to get the handcuffs on the two Bryans. This prompts Kona Bryan to hit a full Nelson slam to Nazi Don before the lads throw both Nazis out of the cage and follow them out for a nice walk and brawl. But security have to come in as well and no one wins. But it turns out a poor fan had got hurt during the melee as duckass Doug Dillinger checks in on him. So I suppose that only a pay-per-view event is going to keep these wild beasts together, Danny. Oh, I mean, we said it a couple of weeks ago, Chris, is this is when you think of great tag team feuds. This has to be far and away at the bottom. I mean, the Nazi twins versus Kronach. And Kronach is being wasted here. They absolutely are, mate. I mean, they they do get a, a little bit of retribution over the next few episodes before we get to the thunder that we're going to be looking at. But, yeah, they, they are just getting bogged down in, in what is a a complete mismatch of a feud for these two guys. I mean, sometimes, you know, two teams of big powerhouses wellying into each other is a good thing. But honestly, it's it's got nothing to do with the rumours about the Harris twins, whether you choose to believe them or not. But it's just more the fact that they were never that good. And I just couldn't work out why they were continuously employed in wrestling. I just didn't get it. No, neither did I, mate. It's crazy, but I guess if you have friends in higher places, uh, this must be the case. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. And of course, at the moment in WCW, you can't get much higher than Vince Russo, can you? So whatever no. Vinny wants, Vinny gets, I suppose. Yeah, certainly. However, we do get some real talent coming out next as we get our real Canadian heroes, Lance Storm and Elix Skipper, who come out for a promo where Lance challenges any member of Captain Wanker's Dayglow Stoner Emporium to a Prisoner of War match, where the winner gets to take a member of the loser's team, Prisoner. So the challenge is answered by Captain Wanker, who then elects Sergeant Awol to face Storm in a tables match like the coward that he is, because a real leader, Danny, ducks a challenge. And sends his smallest um, soldier into battle as well, doesn't he? <laughs> Most definitely, um, at, at least from a um, seniority point of yeah. view. Uh, but Awol gets the advantage early and goes for the choke slam through the table, but Storm escapes and gets back into the ring. A suplex attempt by Storm nearly gets reversed, but Skipper hits Awol in the back with a Canadian flag before the Enzigiri from Storm puts Awol through the table for the win. And who do they pick, Danny? Major waste of money. Um, that is who, absolutely true. And she is very unconvincing on um, on her 
Like it's, she, she almost just runs off with um, Team Canada, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, um, fifty-eight-year-old major waste of money does not put up a fight at all. And I'll be honest with you, mate, I would have rather had Canadian ginger pubes or even Captain Wanker as, I don't know, Fat Brian Adams. Uh, but but never <laughs> mind. Um, and guys, it might appear that we are doing very brief cliff notes for these matches. But if you watch this episode, folks, the vast majority of the matches you're watching tonight really are that short. Because this is what I like to call chapter mania because everything is at such a breakneck pace this week that there's literally no time for in-ring action is the mate no there's really not but and it's not always a bad thing as well um but i just have to say i don't think one of these matches that we i mean i think only one of them went over five minutes but that's not always a bad thing no not always but when you look at a lot of what we're given tonight and the time that could have been given to other things, um, there, there is quite a bit of fat that could have been trimmed from this, I think. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's certain segments that only go on for about 30 seconds or so, but they all add up, don't they? Yeah, especially towards the end. Especially so. Uh, and one of those segments that I would have quite happily uh, cut out is our next one, where... Pamela Paul Shock is backstage with Sting, who looks as fed up as ever, but he accepts the Dark Carnival's challenge to face the great Muta later in what would have been an infinitely better match in 1989. Yeah, absolutely. And later on, there'll be a lot of discussion about that. But yeah, Sting just, he was not at himself here at all. No, he totally isn't, uh, but I- I'm hoping one day I can show you the real Sting, because uh, like you have that uh, Benoit Regal series in your back pocket for the future, I have a Sting and Muta playlist from their prime uh, for us to enjoy at some point as well, so hopefully one of these days you will get to see this man when he indeed was a great man. Oh, fantastic, mate, that sounds brilliant. Yep. But we do have a match that would make our future Sting and Muta match look like their 1989 peak in comparison. As Rick Steiner comes out to the ring to face Mr. No Gimmick, Mike Awesome. I I, I was completely disconnected from this when he came out to the ring, mate. Yeah, it, it was no effort. Not even the music was the same. It was his uh, previous theme song from earlier in the year and it was like wow what happened to the 70s guy it was it was so weird exactly i mean could he not have had a breakaway leisure suit or something like that that he could just rip off when he got to the ring you know like what ted dibiase used to have in his prime and anything like that rather than just yes this is my generic industrial metal music and here i am with my wet hair and my black trunks i you know i, I don't even have my feathered mullet at the moment uh, yeah it, it was a complete disconnect wasn't it especially if you count in the interview that he did prior to this it was just i mean that was um three segments before this it was like he, had, he it was like that he just ripped off his clothes and was like i'm back to the ecw michael some now and then it just makes me worried, where is it going to end? Exactly. Uh, yeah, this this is a guy that, you know, while while I'm not a fan of the fact that they've given him these stupid gimmicks, if they're going to go with it, they've, they've got to go with it 
full hog. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's hope that they actually do do something with this as the weeks go on. Uh, but from an in-ring perspective, uh, Steiner starts early with punches and a takedown, but Mike gets the boot upon a charge and hits a clothesline and a suicide dive. He then gets a table from under the ring and puts it in the ring before whipping Rick to the guardrail and sets up the table in the corner. However, this brings out Jeff Jarrett, who hits Awesome with a pipe to thwart the Awesome bomb, leading Steiner to pin Awesome in what was a classic bunkhouse brawl for the ages. It was, and the unfortunate thing was, I forgot halfway through it that it was a bunkhouse brawl match. (laughs) I think the wrestlers did as well, mate, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But in the props to them, because it furthered the story of Jeff Jarrett and Mike Olsen for the pay-per-view, so that's always a good thing. Yeah, it did. Um, And again, it was a little bit too short for a bunkhouse brawl, but thankfully the bulk of the in-ring time did go to our next match, as it's for our WCW World Heavyweight title, as Kevin Nash faces the world champion Booker T. Scott Steiner threatens Booker to start as Nash blindsides him. He then forces Booker out of the ring for some walk and brawl, prompting Jarrett to throw Booker back in the ring and forcing Russo to sit down as he makes a complete change of character and looks like he's going to call this down the middle. This allows Booker to regroup and hit a sidewalk slam for two before Booker then gets punches in the corner but misses a charge and Rikishi bumps off of a Nash power line for two. Nash then reverses a whip, sending Booker into the fist of Steiner and then gets a big boot. But Jarrett is busy forcing Steiner to exit the ring. Russo gets involved, so Jarrett shoves him. And then Jarrett forces Nash to break the choke boot, but Nash continues the assault with punches. Booker hits a sidekick and axe kick to rally before the spinner Rooney sets up a missile drop kick. But Jarrett is conversing with Russo when Booker hits the bookend. This prompts Russo to hand Jarrett a guitar and wellies Booker with it. Nash then lowers the straps and lands the jackknife powerbomb for the one, two, three, and we have a new world champion. Thoughts on this new milestone, Danny? I was quite shocked because I didn't know that the world championship would change hands on a night like this, on three weeks before the pay-per-view. But I was more shocked of the fact that we had a world championship match 41 minutes into a show. I thought this would be the main event, to be honest. What about you, Chris? Did you enjoy this? I enjoyed the match, to be perfectly honest, because I I like a Russo swerve, to be perfectly fair. But yeah, it was too early in the episode for me. I would, I mean, I, I can see why they did, because of what they were going for to, to end the show. But, yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the last match on the card, but they they could have done it around the 70-minute mark and then done everything else that they did afterwards, you know, in the relatively quick pace that they did. So, yeah, they they could have they could have done something more with this. Um, but, bro, how was the swerve bro broing for you, bro? Bro. <laughs> on the big bro meter, it was off the scale already, but... Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about shock television as well. It's like, oh, no one saw that world championship um, changing hands, even though it was 2000 WCW. But uh, I, would, I would argue to say nobody uh, saw this coming. No, most definitely. And it was it was played as such kind of on the TV as well. So, yeah, I, 
I could actually see this being quite the shock as we had quite a few weeks where, you know, titles hadn't been passed around like hot potatoes. So, yeah, so for this to happen at, at a time where Booker was being a real fighting champion as well and, and defending the belt at least twice a week, uh, yeah, it was it was quite the shock, I suppose. It was, mate. And I think the only thing worse than losing your championship, your world championship, 40 minutes into a show, is the first person you see backstage is Hugh Morris. I mean, can it get lower than that, Chris? It absolutely couldn't, no. So, uh, so yeah, that is that is true. So, um, yeah, Captain Wanker is trying to get Booker to stay backstage for some reason. We don't know why. Uh, we then very quickly cut to Russo and NWO Grey, who now have their sights focused on Goldberg, who finally decides to show up. And he must have been working very hard digging that grave as he's decided not to put his shirt on. Um, so either that or he stopped off for some barbecue on the way and has got sauce all over it. But Goldberg manages to do what Captain Wanker couldn't and convinces Booker to stick around for whatever's going to happen next. I do like a bit of intrigue in my wrestling. Me too, mate. And I think... This next thing we're going to be talking about is a perfect use of Goldberg. So I'm glad he showed up when he did. Yes, that is right. So, yeah, before we can find out what the reveal is for Russo and his cronies, the franchise Shane Douglas is in the crowd who tells a barefaced lie about single-handedly saving wrestling, but he does promise to finish off that sneaky prick Kidman at Fall Brawl in a scaffold match. But tonight he's issuing an open challenge that Crowbar seemingly answers. And not a single one of the fans that we've shown even pretend to care, do they? Like everyone just pretty much sits on their hands for this. Yeah, I, I don't know why, but I'm guessing it's because maybe they were shocked of the uh, world championship change. That they were kind of like at a loss. But I think I'll be giving WCW too much credit if, if I went with that take. But... Um, I'm very interested in this scaffold match, Chris. I've never seen one uh, before. I've only heard that, I think, was it Jim Cornette fell off of one or something and broke his leg in a scaffold yeah. match? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, scaffold matches, they're, they're not really much good, to be honest, or at least a, a lot of them aren't, because they're, they're pretty much done by, like, big, lumbering power wrestlers or kind of done as a as a means to get revenge on your quote-unquote wimp managers, really. But there have been one or two decent ones. Uh, the one at Fall Brawl is actually quite a good one, to be fair, between Kidman and Douglas. And I personally think that the scaffold match at Great American Bash 1991 actually isn't that bad. I, I think it's one of the few good matches on that whole card. But as a whole, yeah, I mean... As a spectacle, they they certainly look the part. But as a as a yeah. wrestling spectacle, they're they're not that good, to be honest, mate. You've you've not really missed much by not seeing one. Would it be the same as um, the TNA uh, Elevation X match? If you remember that, that was a yearly thing for Rhino. Yeah, kind of. To be fair, that's, yeah. that's probably the closest thing to it, really. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've. I certainly recommend watching one so that you can see yeah. for yourself. Uh, but yeah, I, I wouldn't much watch more than one or two, to be honest. 
Oh, brilliant, mate. Yeah, I'll go and check stuff out after. Yeah. So Crowbar seems to be putting up a good fight before he just randomly stops when he sees Daphne with her new boyfriend, who is apparently called Ozzy. And this causes the franchise to throw Crowbar off a balcony because he believes in the majesty of true love, you see, Danny. So he'll do anything to defend that rather than get somebody else to get between another uh, woman and their man, just like that uh, insufferable dick Kidman has done between uh, Shane and his one true beloved, Tori Wilson. Yeah, I mean, we've said it since we've started doing these, um, Chris, is like, we know that Shane Douglas is the ultimate babyface in this feud and Kidman is the ultimate heel, but nobody else sees it. No, they absolutely don't. And I honestly think that Kidman's been biding his time since 1995. And uh, yeah, he's got too much stock in himself now. And I don't think anyone realises that he's always been a prick. Yeah. (laughs) But there you go. So uh, the franchise goes down the stairs to finish Crowbar off and then shoves Daphne for good measure. But it turns out that Crowbar wasn't actually answering the challenge and the challenge is still on. And out comes Bill Goldberg to answer it. Spear, jackhammer, done. And as you quite rightly said yourself, mate, he was the right person to come in and do this because he would have known that uh, there would have been one pair of New York eyes watching whatever was going on. So, yeah, I I liked how this ended, to be honest. Me too, mate. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, he got a massive ovation, as we knew he would. And, yeah, him to just walk out there, it was just, oh, I just love that little segment there. Yeah, as did I. Uh, so Goldberg warns Russo that he's looking for him, um, which obviously he wasn't looking very far because he, he would have known full well that Russo wasn't in the ring. Uh, but never mind, he's obviously had a proper man look. Uh, but we then do cut to backstage where Booker T, like the sore loser that he is, interrupts Nash's shower and takes him out as Russo shakes like a leaf, prompting Steiner to, you guessed it, Bugger off! It's bugger <laughs> off a mania this week, Danny. And not before threatening Vince Russo that to telling him not to touch him, and uh, if he touches him, he'll attack him. But Chris, honestly, I had a bit of a problem with this Booker T assault on uh, Kevin Ash in the shower. This doesn't really scream babyface to me. No. I don't know about you, mate, but yeah, that this is big disconnect here. Yeah. I can see what they were trying to do, but it it does completely scream of, of sore loser. I mean, they yeah. they could have got, I mean, to be perfectly fair, they could have got Captain Wanker to take him out backstage or Captain Wanker's Dayglow Stoner Emporium. They they really <laughs> could have done like a, a group yeah. attack or something from, from the goofy faces. That would have been absolutely fine. But yeah, in, in this, you're taking who is your number one baby face at the time and I won't say you're healing him out, but it does make him look like a really sore loser. I mean, this this man's just trying to ki- just trying to clean his William bum so he can go out. <laughs> we <laughs> all have a basic human right to hygiene, you know. That's <laughs> it's it's not on. It's really not, mate. And he, he, all he wants to do is go and eat some Korean. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely nice callback. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we we also get quite a 
unfortunate segment next, as it turns out we are invited to the wedding. Yippee! Wow, I have to dig out my best um, tuxedo suit T-shirt that I have in the cupboard somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we've got to put on our our best finery for this. And uh, I I will say this, Danny, um, the WWF production department at the time had nothing to be scared of because how cheap did the graphic look as well? It looks like it was done on the old paint and pixel that uh, Master yeah. P's No Limit record label had their albums out on, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, yeah. It looks awful. It was just normal typed writing. Um, yeah, no, no effects, nothing like that. Just, yeah. But still, it's 2000, so we've got to give them a bit of a break. Do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> but we we then get um, what, for me, was actually the match of the night. As uh, And this isn't a wind-up either, Daddy Dan as uh, the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett, comes out next for his match with the original Goomba of Ooh-Ah, Big Vito. So Jarrett starts us off with punches, but Vito counters with a power slam for two, but a charge is thwarted. Jarrett rallies back and takes an atomic drop and shot to the body, but Jarrett lures Vito in for punches. Vito misses the clothesline, but hits a beautiful-looking capo kick and arm drag takeover for two. A suplex and elbow drop gets two again, but Jarrett misses the O'Connor roll, but manages to hit an Enzigiri. Vito reverses the stroke into a belly-to-back suplex and hits a flying headbutt for two. Vito then goes for the implant DDT, but Jarrett reverses into the stroke for the win in what was a really decent back and forth match that again got a decent amount of time yeah this was excellent um i i hate to say this dan sorry but props to jeff Jarrett because he really did make big veto look like a star in this match and it is a very underrated gem of uh of this show yeah it really is i mean you know the the world title match was very good but this match completely edges it for me it was it was far and away the best thing we saw and again i think it is just as much a testament to vito as it is jarrah i mean he was one of those guys that you it would be quite easy to forget that this guy did, didn't just come along i mean this guy was doing job work for both wcw and wwf throughout the early 90s and had actually really crafted his skills so the fact that he's getting a bit of spotlight on him and he's actually good in the ring i think it stands him in good stead like in for the like early 2000s when he's on smackdown and what have you and, and again he's a decent worker there as well he's, he's just tarnished with a bad gimmick to be honest at that point yeah, yeah, he really was, man. But yeah, um, fantastic match. Definitely worthy. Another match worthy of being the actual main event on this show. But it certainly wasn't, was it? No, it wasn't, sadly. But um, we do get a little bit of brief respite before that as uh, Jarrett goes to get more guitars from his pickup truck before a wild Mike Awesome ambushes him and loads him into the pickup truck and drives away. And again, not a single 70s bass guitar lick to be heard in the entire time. <laughs> no, but I loved that little surprise there because I didn't see it coming as I was watching it. I was like, how hard is it to hide a six foot three giant in the back of underneath guitars and he just popped out like it was something from... Um, 
uh, Takeshi's Castle or something. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there weren't that many guitars in there. You would have at least seen his feet poking through or that glorious mullet of his, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but never mind. Uh, we, we next get um, WCW's assortment of future stars and talentless pricks, the natural-born thrillers, who make it to the ring as... Barely decent, Mike Sanders announces that it's thriller time. They call out the filthy animals for a five-on-five elimination tag because we haven't had enough Conan this week, apparently. No stipulations of each match. It seemed like there was only two matches that didn't have stipulations. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but thankfully, Sean Stasiak will not be wrestling because I think he's got himself a knee injury. But sadly, he's going to be commentating. But he calls Tony Schiavone... Tony Jabroni. So that works for me. Yeah, that pretty much works in 2000. But yeah, definitely a rough night for the commentary desk here. Yeah. <laughs> I must say as well that Tony does look a complete Jabroni again this week with his uh, CNA t shirt underneath his uh, blazer. I mean, for goodness sake, man, will you please put a collared shirt on? You would think so, mate, but as he's discussed on his own show's podcast, um, he'd definitely given up at this point and he was just cashing a cheque. Yeah, I bet you as well he was completely bare from the waist down as well. <laughs> that would be a very safe bet. We'll have to ask him on Twitter. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, because that's, that's what we need to, to get blocked from a, a, a third-string AEW announcer, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Palumbo and Guerrera get things going with Hoovy kicking at the legs and taking him over with a nice suplex. Hoovy then tries to go up but gets caught in midair for a fallaway slam before Stasiak brings up Paul Orndorff as their trainer but doesn't seem to think too much of him. Bit of foreshadowing there. Reno then comes in to pound on Mysterio, but it's quickly back to Hoovy to counter a powerbomb, allowing Ray to drop a springboard leg drop, and then a suplex puts Ray down before Jindrak comes in for a no-hands lion salt. Kidman comes in and eats a tilt-a-well slam, which he doesn't quite sell because he's a prick, as he pops up with a chart buster. The hot tag brings in Conan to clean house as everything breaks down with a bunch of people fighting to the floor for an eight-man countout, which takes us down to Sanders versus Tigress doing double duty this week, with the latter knocking Mike into the corner for a Bronco Buster. That goes nowhere though, and the 3.0 gives Mike the easy win. And I've got to say, Danny, this match was good while it lasted, but all the time has been eaten up by unimportant little things backstage, meaning that this was just too quick. Yeah, it, it really was. But the ending was very, very, um, I'd say, logical for the Natural Born Thrillers because it gave uh, more heat to uh, Mike Sanders because he mm. desperately needed some. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with that. And... This is the thing. I I know I've ragged on Mike Sanders because he truly is terrible as a wrestler and he had no business being in this group as a wrestler. But as a mouthpiece, he's just something else. I mean, he's he was far and away the best talker in the group. And I mean, we're not talking Dwayne Johnson levels of charisma, but this guy was underrated on the mic. 
yeah, it really was. He really found his niche as a manager. And it just shocks me that he was in um, Heartland Wrestling Association for, a num- I think, about a year. And he was never called up to television because he would have been a brilliant manager for, say, say Billy and Chuck or something like that. Or you know. Yes. There were guys in the early 2000s that were crying out for a manager to give them direction. Yeah. And now that you mention it, I could totally see him in Billy and Chuck. You could have still had um, Rico there as the stylist, but you could have Mike Sanders as the guy pulling the strings. Because the thing is, there was nothing explained why those two were fake gay. (laughs) Exactly. It could have been explained that Sanders set it up all along and you would have completely believed it. Yeah, and I would have loved if he was the fake um, creature man at the end of the (laughs) storyline. Oh, that would have been brilliant. Or even... If he was the guy behind Three Minute Warning. Oh, yes. Definitely. You know what? Yeah, that would have been 100% better than it was. Yeah. <laughs> Coming soon to One Man's Meat, ladies and gentlemen. A series <laughs> of hypotheticals of where we would put below average Mike Sanders in the WWE for the next 10 years. Bring Let's it on. It. Let's, Let's do, it. do it. Yeah, we will end every episode from now on with a fantasy booking of what we would do with Mike Sanders. And I'm sticking to this as well. It won't be on the next main show because that's already written and prepped and ready to go. But I'm telling you now, from the next episode of Cold Cuts Onwards, and I'm sticking to this, we are going to be sticking Mike Sanders into hypothetical factions, groups, managements, pairings in the WWF from the invasion angle onwards. Chris. I will... I will not be swayed on this. No, let's do it. But I'll just do one final one. Mark Sanders and Brock Lesnar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now, do you know, I can I can totally see that. Um, it would mean that we would miss out on Paul Heyman, but I could totally see that because, again, Mike Sanders is one of those classic men that could probably sell ice to the Eskimos, isn't he? Yeah, he really is. (laughs) (laughs) But very good. But going back to the main show, as we are nearly out of time on this broadcast, Goldberg claims his next victim, as Scott Steiner, is laid out in the bogs. This prompts Russo to beg Vito for help, so Skull Von Crush agrees, in spite of all the horrible things that Russo has done to him over the last couple of weeks, and gives him the dreaded kiss of death which Russo, being completely oblivious and probably a fake Italian, completely misses. But commentary point out that because of this, Russo has nowhere to run. Which this then prompts a terrified-looking Vince Russo to head to the ring with Vito in tow, who states that he's done running, which is handy, because here comes big bad Billy G. Russo tries to tell Goldberg that he'll fire him if he touches him, so Bill barks at him instead. (laughs) But Russo continues to pull on Superman's cape and asks Vito to take out the garbage, which he does in fine fashion by taking out Russo himself. The most swerviest of swerve bros has been swerved, bro, before Goldberg throws Vito something, maybe keys, I think, and tells Vito to take out the garbage. This prompts Vito to carry Russo off, presumably out to the back of Bill Goldberg's car, for a trip to the desert. And I'm sure that Goldberg and Vito, being great pals, talked about where it was and that Vito had a good knowledge of the New Mexico desert's geography because there was no kind of hinting to where Vito was supposed to be taking Russo now, was there? 
No, absolutely wasn't, mate. But the thing that made me laugh about oh, this entire segment was Tony Schiavone saying, and I quote, take out the garbage. What does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I've I've got to say, mate, to be honest, for WCW, because I know they liked their three-man commentary tables and I know the both of us like as many commentators as possible on a show. I must say that I really liked the cohesive nature of a two-man booth of Tony and Mark Madden. Yeah, I liked the chemistry between them two as well. It was a nice little um, break from the three-man booth. But yeah, I've fully agreed with you, mate. Yeah, most definitely. And um, it is a shame, really, that we got taken away from it as... uh, as we've been talking about stereotypes over the last couple of weeks over at One Man's Meat, we next get the obligatory rice and chopsticks music as the past caring mooter faces the apathetic man called Sting. Or does he, Danny? He's so, well, that's the, the question because this was more of an angle, wasn't it? Like, it wasn't like, did they even get in the ring? I can't remember. <laughs> So, I, I don't think they do. I, I, they they start fighting in the aisle before the yeah. bell. Um, so, it's pretty obvious from then on that we're not going to get a match. As uh, Sting does try to take over and hits Muta with a chair, but he's constantly getting kicked back towards the big screen, where Vampiro and the clowns cut through the screen so that Vampiro can dive off and hit Sting with a kendo stick. Sting fights back. And then they all climb onto the screen where Violent J and Shaggy 2 Dope pull him through the hole in the screen and pound him down for, if I'm being honest, way longer than this needed to go. Um, This was really just an excuse to get Sting on TV, I think. And and it's such a shame, really, because it was such a waste. Yeah, yeah, fully agreed, mate. And I just checked, I remember writing down... um, Sting never even took his jacket off this entire night. He was, he had his jacket on in the opening segment. He had that in the interview, and then he had it here. But the depressing thing about this is, I alluded to it earlier. Um, Tony Schiavone just breaking down this great Sting versus uh, great Muta matches that happened in uh, the early or well, late eighties, early nineties. And and then you kind of faced with this where they're just sprawling in an hour way and Stings has, hasn't even got his jacket off. But I did think it was a cool visual when um Vampiro and ICP ripped through the um Nitro vision. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that did look cool. And again, I'll be perfectly honest, I I always liked the Dark Carnival, to be honest. Like, even when I wasn't particularly the biggest fan of ICP's music, I I actually found the whole look and the whole presentation very cool to be fair so you know i can see why some people choose not to like them as artists or people but you can tell that you know they've, they've got a proper pro wrestling background here and they they fully know what their role is and they've they've been doing it very well in this faction i think yeah they really have they have, and uh, we, we still have a little bit of time left to go. Just time enough 
for Goldberg to have made the quickest journey into the New Mexican desert of all time, where Bret Hart, of all people, meets him to say that he hates Russo more than anybody, saying that he'd never forgotten Montreal, (sighs) and that he wants to help bury Russo. So Goldberg, like an idiot, agrees and hands Bret a shovel, prompting Bret... Swerve bro, to blast Goldberg in the back with said shovel and yell about Goldberg ending his career to end the show. Realism, Chris, realism. <laughs> realism, yeah. Um, you know, because those those casual fans would have probably forgotten all about Montreal by now. So they really wouldn't have needed reminding. And, you yeah. know, do we do we really need to remind the fans that Goldberg is dangerous in the ring. <laughs> no, you're totally right. Um, it seemed like, oh, we have Bret Hart for a certain amount of days. We need to get him on television. Um, I had that to you, uh, just to have to tell the truth. I woke up during the desert scene and I was thinking, am I watching Breaking Bad again? Because there's a lot of scenes <laughs> in it. <laughs> In the New Mexican um, desert, in the New Mexico desert, um, and I was thinking when I saw Russo lying on the floor, I was thinking, "Is he dead?" I mean, because he was lifeless. <laughs> and but yeah, this was a very weird ending to a wrestling show. Very weird. It was. I mean, all it needed was um, Mean Gene running around with his his shirt and tie tucked into his underpants and and nothing else. <laughs> Like, while he's whimpering, isn't he? Yes, I have yeah. watched the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, but that is all I've watched. Uh, through, through through no fault of my own, it was bloody brilliant, and I will get round to watching it at some point. Oh, yeah, fantastic stuff, mate. But, yeah, um, we're all... Everyone's fans of, like... Um, oh, wrestling uh, is really good when it's out of the arena as well, but I think they just pushed it a bit far here. Yeah, I mean, I'll... I'll be very honest in my breaking down of this show, Danny. Um, I like Vince Russo. I really do. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I much prefer Jim Cornette, but I like Vince Russo. His shows are entertaining distractions for the most part. But hook-a-duck, shows like this lead me to believe that every now and again, Vince Russo loses his tiny little mind um i I spent this entire show sat in awe with no idea how to react to what i was watching and then to cap it off he goes back to montreal at the end which is something that he actually had nothing to do with conceiving yeah yeah that's what i was thinking as well whenever you watch a documentary about montreal school job or read an article his name really doesn't come up at all i mean it was vince mcmahon you hear vince mcmahon's name pat patterson's name julia hart uh, julie hart's name even but you don't hear vince russo no you don't and uh, yeah it it really did um scream of russo trying to shoehorn himself into the bret hart goldberg angle that's going to yeah. roll on for a couple of weeks with no end product but I've I've really got to be honest in my assessment here of this show, Danny. It was entertaining, don't get me wrong, but this was a really messy show 
with too many segments and it caused the matches to suffer. But as we've commented on the positive, it did have its moments. Um, but it shows like this that prompt me to ask, why can't all wrestling be 20 minutes long? <laughs> no, totally, mate. But yeah, we had um, basically seven matches in this Um and five of them had stipulations, and one of them had two stipulations, if you count the Prisoner of War slash Tables match. So it was a bit much. It was. You could almost say it was a bit Russo-rific, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, guys, uh, what did you think? Uh, we are coming to the end of what has been a fun distraction from our normal program for rob and dan uh, and yeah we we want to know your thoughts as unbooking the tankatory uh, comes to its inevitable end um please do leave comments um either at one man's meet on twitter or even at utt tank with what you've been thinking of the series i'm sure rob and dan will read them out on their final final episode um but um if you do go on to UTT Tank, you will get some tank facts. And I have done my usual and just realised I haven't put any on my notes. So, Danny, I can waffle for a bit while you look for some and give give you a chance to get a word in edgeways for a change. And just say that um, on our One Man's Meat programme, which we love uh, to the moon and back, we will be coming up um very soon with our main show talking about the nexus it might already have played by the time this episode comes out because we're going to be recording it very soon but we're also coming to the end of season one of cold cuts uh we have got something truly something planned for season two um take that as you will but it certainly won't be as long as the 25 week magnum opus that has been season one of cold cuts but we've got a lot of irons in the fire so do please listen out do please continue to follow us we thank you for the support do leave comments do let us know what you want uh but danny i think that's more than enough padding uh can you hit us with some tank facts please my brother Absolutely, mate, with pleasure. So the question was asked on Twitter on the 4th of July by somebody called Mr Wrestling 6, who said, what type of wrestling fans do you not like? And somebody answered him or her, well, says him, the ones that refuse to admit that Tank Abbott is the greatest of all time. Oh, I wonder who that mystery replier could have been, eh, Danny? I wonder who. We also have another one. Electricity once got a shock off of Tank Abbott. Yes, that is true. It was it was widely publicised back in the 1920s because Tank Abbott <laughs> has lived forever. Of course, yeah. We also have our final one. Um, Tank Abbott doesn't watch Dynamite. Tank Abbott eats Dynamite for breakfast. Oh, of course. Very good. And you've got to get your sustenance where you can get it, don't you, Danny? Oh, yeah, especially these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, guys, it is with a heavy heart that we announce that we will see you in two weeks for the final episode of Tank Talks, where we will be discussing the 6th of September 2000 episode of WCW Thunder. However, my darlings, in the meantime and in between time, thank you for listening and stay beefy. Mm.
Meat Cider.